Good morning, and again, I'm so glad to see you here this morning. Welcome all of those of you who've tuned in, and uh, why don't you take just a moment, turn to your neighbor and say, you look good. Or, Or if you're sitting by yourself, just say, I look good in my silk pajamas. Yeah, welcome. Good to see you. Now, uh, we are a little travel restricted these days, so I thought I'd begin by reminding you of a beautiful part of the world. Some of you will have been to Monterey or maybe you've driven through it. It's uh, a little town on the Southern California coast. It's gorgeous. It's uh, known for its natural beauty, uh, its golfing, and uh, also for its uh, rich marine life. Um, and, And as a result of all the fish that are there, it's a pelican's paradise, an interesting thing happened years ago. As fishermen on the docks, they would clean their fish and they'd throw the guts or the offal to the pelicans. And the pelicans loved this to the point where the birds grew fat and lazy and contented, much like some of us in quarantine. But they just ate what the fishermen gave them until, of course, the fishermen found that they could make money on the fish guts by turning it into fertilizer. And so no more snacks for the pelicans. Odd thing is, is when the change came, the pelicans made no effort to fish for themselves. They they waited around and grew gaunt and thin, and many of them starved to death. They'd forgotten how to fish for themselves. Uh, Some enterprising ecologists solved the problem of the dying pelicans. Fascinating what they did. They, They imported new pelicans from the south, birds accustomed to foraging for themselves, Uh, And they were placed among their their starving cousins. And the newcomers immediately started catching fish. And and before long, the the hungry pelicans followed suit and the the famine was ended. Great story, right? And it illustrates the power of a good example. Uh, One bird modeling to another how to catch fish and and feed oneself. And we all kind of know that, that a picture, as the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And sometimes we're going to need a picture to get it, or a person. We're going to need an example, someone who shows us what to do and shows us how to live. And I think, folks, the, the, the Apostle Paul knows this. We've been working through uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we've been in chapter two. It, it's got some of the, the, the richest, uh, most theological sections of the entire Bible. And in this chapter, Paul's been, been, been talking about Jesus and how we're meant, as his followers, we're meant to pattern our lives after his, the one who, who came down the ladder and, and picked up the towel to serve and, and, and picked up a cross to die. Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We read these things and we agree with them. <laughs> yet, yet at another level, we say that's, that's impossible. That, that standard is way too high. And, and we expect Paul to teach it. We expect preachers to preach it. And, and, and we expect even to try to live up to the standard. But, but we also believe at, at some level that it's impossible to do this in real life. And, and that's where, where today's passage comes in. In verses 19 to the end of the chapter, Paul kind of switches gears. He's just given one of the most amazingly deep and and rich teaching, and now he gives us something completely different. He gives us a travel log. 
The rest of the chapter is about the travel plans of two people, two friends of Paul, two people that the Philippians would have known very well, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul usually included a section like this towards the end of his letters as a kind of way of wrapping up. So the question is, why did Paul include this section featuring Timothy and Epaphroditus? Why put it here side by side with this incredible passage describing Jesus' humility and servant nature and self-giving love. I think Paul wanted to give his hearers living, breathing examples of ordinary people who were living out what Paul was teaching. And we're going to look at these two, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as living examples. And then we're going to think about how this all applies for us. So if you're having your Bibles with you, turn to Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 19 forward. And if you're able, you can stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, For everyone looks out for his own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, And honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. And God, take these words, take these examples of these two men, and make them live and breathe in our hearts and our imaginations this morning. Illuminate your word and help us to live it, we pray, by your grace and in your spirit, we ask. Amen. So again, uh, Paul has been talking about these great themes, servanthood, and considering others ahead of yourself, and, and having the same attitude as Jesus. But now he says, you want that with skin on? You want to know what this looks like? Look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. Well, what I want to do is, is talk this morning about four things, four things about their Christ-like example that I think can help us thrive in our own faith journey. We'll, we'll conclude with a time of reflection and then with a, a sharing of the Lord's Supper together. The first thing is, is when you live out Christ-like behavior, it creates a sense of family. There's, there's a connection that goes deeper than, than just mere acquaintance. There's, there's a deeper bond. Paul says of Timothy, he's, he's like a son to me. We're in, the, we're in the family business. That's how deep the bond goes. I'll never forget years ago getting a phone call uh, 
telling me that my son, my son, four-year-old son, Caleb, had been in a serious accident. And uh, after processing all the emotion and, and trauma that went with that, something became really, really clear for me. I'd, I'd die for my boys. I'd die for my sons. I'd do anything for them. And some of you would say the same of, of your family members. And Paul says, that's the kind of relationship I have with Timothy. I have the, the kind of relationship where, where no cost would be too great. Nothing would be too inconvenient. Nothing w- would be out of reach. Whatever is needed is offered. It's available. That's what it's like when you have this Jesus life being lived out together. And then he says of Epaphroditus, he's like a brother, like a brother to me. Um, any of you have siblings? I have uh, two brothers and a sister, and uh, I love them like crazy. And here's the thing with siblings, though, right? They can drive you crazy, right? Anyone relate? But if they're in trouble, you know, or, or they needed money or a favor or, or help, you would absolutely disrupt your life for the sake of theirs. You're just doing it. And Paul says when, when this Christ-likeness is being lived out in community, there's there's a connection that, that grows so deep, it's, it's like being in family. That's, that's the kind of bond that begins to form. You begin to sacrifice for one another. It, it's cool, this week I got an email from one of our small group leaders, and, and they were burdened for a member of their small group, uh, a person who, quite honestly, has just seen trouble after trouble recently. They, they, they've been unemployed and, and, and been really, really sick and hospitalized, and they were really concerned for them. And, and, and they said to me, they said, listen, I know they have a very specific financial need right now, and I'd love to help. And I'm wondering, would the church be willing to kick in some money to help as well? And I'm like, of course. We, we love joining with you in, in your acts of, of compassion. But this, this person, they, they hear a need, and because they become like family, they were willing to sacrificially consider the need of another, not just their own needs. This is the thing. Christ-like families become self-giving families who, who de- deeply care for one another. And I've got to tell you, I love when I see this demonstrated in our church. Secondly, not only is, it, uh, is there this deep family, it's, there's also a, a deep togetherness. He says of Epaphroditus, two interesting phrases— my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. And the Greek word fellow worker means together worker. Like, what does that mean? Well, one commentator suggests that it's like uh, pairs figure skating. You remember pairs figure skating from the Olympics? Um, in, in our family, I have, we have a bit of a love-hate relationship with figure skating and watching it. We, we love it and hate it. My, my wife gets really stressed when we watch it. And she's like apprehensive the whole time. She, anytime anybody spins or does a jump, she's so worried if they fall. And if they do fall, there's loud screams in our household. But it's, it's also beautiful when you've got two, two pairs, two, uh, two individuals who are skating together, performing in sync, often in, in perfect unity. But if skaters aren't working together, it doesn't work at all. If one partner doesn't show up. They don't skate. Paul also says he's my together soldier. 
The image is, is like a, a Spartan fighting image, a technique. The word here is paraclete. It's the same word that we use for Holy Spirit. It's, it's a military word and, and means the one who comes alongside. And, and in Greek and, and Roman fighting, you, you fought together, shield to shield. You, you thought of yourself as a unit as you fought. And think of any sports team. that They're successful when they play as a team. And Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're examples of Christ-likeness. There's a sense of, if we don't do this together, it is not going to get done. If we don't fight this together, we're going to lose. If we don't skate this one together, it's going to be ugly. And, and in our individualistic day, our culture, this is a, a huge one for us to get as followers of Christ. That, that Christian, the Christian faith is not a solo sport. It's not something you can go alone. We often here are urging you to, to join a small group, to, to reach out and, and to keep connected and, and to join a ministry team. And especially during these kind of isolating days, we say, stay connected because we really won't make it. We will not thrive spiritually and, every, and in every other way of our lives without each other. We, we live this faith life out together. Then he says, when we are living examples of this, there's this deep faithfulness that emerges. I love that song that we sang at the beginning of the service. Great is your faithfulness. And, and, and Paul talks about this faithful theme in, in this passage. He says in, in, in uh, one moment, he says, he's your messenger, describing Epaphroditus. The same word that is used for evangelist, a bringer of good news. He's your messenger. What is a messenger? Uh, anyone, have you ever played that icebreaker game, uh, telephone? You know, where you whisper in somebody's ear and then it goes down the line and, and you see what the last person says. And it often doesn't translate so well. The, like, like something like this. The, the Canucks will be playing hockey in June, which translates into the Canucks will be playing golf in May. Something like that. Not quite a faithful message to the original. It got changed along the way, but a, a faithful messenger reports what they've heard and what they've been entrusted with. Paul says Christ-like examples are, are faithful messengers. They, they carry the message openly. You know, they, they don't embellish or, or change the message. There's, there's this authenticity that's involved. Paul, in one of his other letters, describes Christ's followers as those who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. I love that description. Unveiled faces means living without masks, without pretending or performing. And so we don't change the message because of convenience or because we just want to get part of the message across. We, we just carry the message, the, the good news, the gospel that, that we've been entrusted with. No other agenda. Now, uh, Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus, I love that name. Let's not make it trendy, um, although it would be fun to have an Epaphroditus in our church. He's uh, also described as a faithful minister. He'd been sent by the Philippian uh, church to minister to Paul's needs, and, and Paul says he's done it. He's completed his job. He's, he's taken on an assignment. He's heard what he's supposed to do, and he's not holding anything back. He's fulfilling the duty that he's been given. So he's a faithful messenger and a faithful minister. It's, it's a, really a picture of somebody 
walking out the calling of God in a real authentic way. It's, it's really pretty. It's really good. Fourth characteristic Paul describes about living this life is that we'll take unusual risks for the sake of God's kingdom. We'll, we'll have this courage about us. Again, he says this of Epaphroditus, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Uh, there's a fascinating word here in the Greek. The, the word is paraboluthestai. I love that word. And it means risking your life or, or not regarding your life. But the original word was a, a gambler's word, and it has to do with staking everything on, on a roll of the dice. Paul's saying that for the sake of Jesus, Epaphroditus gambled with his life. There's actually another famous use of the word. Uh, New Testament commentator William Barclay tells about the, in the early days of the church how, uh, how there was an association of Christians called the Paraboloni. The, the gamblers. And it was their mission to, to visit prisoners and, and the sick, especially those sick with, with dangerous diseases. As I shared recently, in, in AD 252, a, a plague broke out in the city of Carthage. And, and the people of the city just flung the dead into the streets and, and fled in terror. But Cibrian, the, 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 the Carthage bishop gathered the Christians together and they set out to burying the dead and nursing the sick and in that plague-stricken city. And in doing so, they saved the city from, from death and destruction at the risk of their own lives, and some of them did die. Barclay concludes the story with this description. He says, there should be in the Christian, the Christ follower, an almost reckless courage, which makes him ready to gamble with his life to serve Christ and men. Most of us won't actually have to risk our lives, but our lives you know, begin to go beyond just simply what is convenient at the moment. When we're, when we're living by example, when we're inspiring one another as we kind of walk this life of faith out, it, it inspires, it encourages a, a, this life of risking, risking our stuff, risking our possessions, risking our reputations, all for the sake of God's kingdom and, and God's people. So Paul holds up these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he says, they get it. They're doing it. Look at them. Don't miss out on their example. Now, just, just for a few minutes, let's, let's talk about the power of example because example is powerful. You know this. Example can, can transform theory into action. Things that, that were fuzzy before can become clear when you have an example. I mean, things you've struggled with, things that you, you've read about in the Bible, things you've heard sermons on, things like loving your neighbor or, or being generous or discovering and being faithful to our, our calling. Uh, living as a, a servant, it can be challenging to figure out how to do that and what that might look like and in our situations. The, the power of an example is it can kind of help you connect the dots. Uh, I was thinking this week of my friend Mike, who, who many years ago taught me to do car maintenance on, on one of my first cars. It was an 86 Chevette. Not exactly the high watermark for cars, by the way. 
But up until I met Mike, I had no idea how to do anything with a car. I mean, except for drive it and put gas in the car. That was it. Uh, You know, a a car manual looked like Greek to me. But Mike would come over. He, He had a mechanical background, and he showed me the ropes, and I just watched, but he'd, he'd kind of say to me things like this. He'd say, this you can do for yourself, and this you leave for the professionals. This is what he'd say. And, and, and so th- ever since, I've been able to do, actually, surprisingly, I surprised myself in this, I can do some basic stuff, basic maintenance on my car. But Mike was kind of like my putting-it-together guy. Why would the spiritual life be any different? We need a, a putting-it-together person. You know the, the root word of the meaning discipleship or disciple is actually apprentice? We're, we're called to a, an apprenticing relationship as followers of Jesus. It, it's a relationship where you come close to someone who, who's either mastered the skills or is at least a little further along than you are. The, they're, they're further along in the life and the, the characteristics, and you can learn from them. We've talked about spiritual disciplines a lot earlier this year, and, and how do you learn those? Uh, for me, it was you apprentice under someone. I, I learned how to fast and pray, as I've told you before, through a friend of mine in England. I was going to a Christian college, and I got a word that my mom was, was sick back home and, and was going to have to go in for surgery, serious surgery. And I was so afraid, so scared. And this guy, who, who's just a little further along than I was in, in my faith, he, uh, he said, you know what, why don't we get together for a couple weeks before her surgery, and we can fast and pray. We can skip a meal. We skip lunch, and we did this. Every day, we spent an hour in, in one of the bedrooms uh, in, the, in the dorm. While everyone else was in the dining hall, we were there praying together, praying for my mom and praying for God to break into that situation. And, and, and I know my mom actually came out very okay, but how God broke in that situation was actually taught me a skill that I have carried with me for the rest of my life. I, I now fast regularly as part of my spiritual disciplines, and God's used that to grow me and uh, teach me all kinds of things. It's been a great gift. Many of the spiritual lessons I, I've learned in life have not been from a book. I've learned them from other people. This, this week I was thinking of, of some of the countless people God has given me in my life who've who've taught me so much. Uh, I thought of Pastor Bill this week, Bill Ballard. 22 years ago, when I was a a brand new pastor on staff here at Hillside, Bill, very shortly after, maybe a month or two after I came on board, he came on in a very part-time way and was leading our music ministry at the time. And I remember being so grateful at the time and the the ways in which kind of Bill just showed me that the pastoral ropes taught me how to do so much. but, but far more than kind of skills, he actually communicated to me about an attitude which, which I've held on uh, and, and learned through him, his, his servant-hearted approach to the church. I was inspired by the ways he loved the church and, and at the same time loved his, his wife and his three boys so, so well. And I, I kind of looked at myself as a, a young tree as a pastor in those days, and Bill was one of the stakes that kind of kept me upright in those early days of my, my pastoral life. Many of the lessons I've learned have been through your examples. Um, caring for the poor, loving people who are far from God, uh, generous hospitality, servanthood, and, and then just radical giving. 
But in our walk with Jesus, I, w- I would say we need somebody who can translate and explain and demonstrate how you do it. It's the power of example. And, and friends, sometimes in church life, I, I think we've defaulted to a theory and lecture and study the manual approach to training people. But the, the Bible says that the, the best model is a master apprentice. For us uh, Skywalkers, we need a Yoda. For us hobbits, we need a Gandalf. This passage describes the type of people who come alongside one, someone and, and help figure it out. And yes, of course, the manual is important, but far more of the Christian faith is caught than taught. Sermons are important, but, but we're really not going to figure this out unless somebody walks this out with us, unless there is a living example in our lives. Now, I want to end this section by just you know, asking you to reflect on a short little scripture. This is found in another letter of Paul, and he, and he writes it to Timothy. And it's fascinating what Paul asks Timothy to do in light of what we've just read about him. It's found in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, where Paul says this, Don't anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Five things that Paul wants Timothy to be an example in. In speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. And I'm warning this morning, I want to kind of challenge you to dig in a little bit on this. And this may be helpful for you to to download the sermon notes and to read this passage kind of slowly and, and to consider this as kind of like, you know, off online time. But uh, here are some questions that you can reflect on, and these are also found in the notes. Who have been people in your life who have been examples for you in one or two of those areas? You know, do, do you know anyone who loves well? You, you, you look at them and they're kind of a model for patience and gentleness and kindness. They, they just have a way of, of empathizing with others and caring for them. What about someone who lives a life of faith? You just, just they're willing to take risks. They're not, they're not pretentious about it. They're, they're just authentic. You know, they have that, that nature in them. Or those who you think of and, and they're marked by their purity. Or maybe their speech. I think of, I can think of a friend of mine who, uh, a leader who I've never heard him say a bad thing about another person, not once. So speech, or, or just in the way they live their lives. You think of those people? Maybe that's worth journaling about and reflecting about. That's been a helpful process for me this last week. And where do you sense God asking you to grow in one of those areas? Is there one of those things where where God is actually sort of putting his finger on? You you could grow in love or or grow in risk-taking or in faith or speech or purity. And and then the follow-up question to that is, who might you go to to help you connect the dots in that area? Um, We uh, believe in the ministry of all the saints, of all the, the priesthood of all believers here at Hillside, and so... We don't believe that you just go to the pastor to get the answers to your spiritual questions. It's, it's, God places us in small groups, and we look to those God's put us with. And, but I, I do love the fact 
this week, actually, somebody called me up and said, Derwin, you know, I, I really want to grow in this area, and, and I feel like I'm, I've hit a bit of a roadblock. Would you meet with me? And so we met for coffee this week, kind of a, in a socially distant manner. And uh, we were able to share together, and, and, and I, I feel like I'm just a little further ahead than this guy. I love how teachable he is, but he's just soaking it up and wants to learn. And I, I got to tell you, folks, God loves that kind of teachability, that humility that says, I, I, I want to get past that. I don't want to just be stuck here for the rest of my days. God honors seekers. God honors those who will step out and, and not, not only look for examples, but pursue them and you know, some of you need to, to go and find a mentor and say, actually, don't freak them out by saying, will you be my mentor? Um, just, you know, start casual. Like, can I buy you a coffee? <laughs> start easy. Uh, it gets scary if it's like, will you be my mentor? Um, you start with just buy the person a cup of coffee and, and begin to pick their brain. And then, you know, if appropriate, ask them for another coffee down the road sometime. But hunch, my hunch is, is that there are people in this church who can help you connect the dots. And folks, we are meant to be examples for one another. We won't thrive in, in, in what Jesus calls us to without the body of Christ, without him actually active through us. Well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper